Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, Tuesday evening for the Dan uh, and Omar show. Uh, another another night of, of Champions League action, which I'm uh, quite looking forward to Chelsea Atletico tonight. I always seem to enjoy Atletico in the Champions League. There's like an extra buzz about the types of games I've really enjoyed for the last five, six years. Uh, we're not going to be chatting Champions League tonight, though. We're going to be chatting um, around uh, the topic, I guess, of sporting integrity, which um, collides our worlds quite nicely. Um, but Dan, do you, want, do you want to talk about what we're talking about this tonight, but also a couple of other, other things you wanted to address? Of course. So um, first thing is, if I remember, Omar, from last week, we did our predictions at the end, but it was Champions League week yesterday, the last week, last midweek. And I think if I remember correctly, I backed PSG and Liverpool and you put back Barca and, and Leipzig. I just want to double check that that, was, that is correct. That is correct. But I'd like to point out that I only did that just to be, just to make it interesting. So we could have this kind of, like banter to start the show. That's uh, that was the main the main reason for it. Oh, so, very, very kind. <laughs> um, so uh, yes. So um, just a couple of things. One of the things, is, as as you know, and um, I know you're very charitable charitable guy as well. Is that I'm on um, the board of a really good charity called Football Aid, um, as, as people know. Um, like uh, a lot of companies and lots of charities at the moment, they're going through um, pretty tough times um, in terms of lack of um, events um, and obviously everything closing down to the extent it has um, in the UK and around the world. So what um, we are doing as Football Aid um, is um, trying to get together a campaign, which is a text to donate competition or not a competition, but a text to win campaign. Um, and all you need to do is text FOOTY, which is F-O-O-T-Y, to 785. And all of the proceeds are going to go to um, Football Aid um, and the charity, which, um, among other things, um, provides for lots of uh, monies and resources for diabetes charities. So, um, again, it's uh, footy to 785. Um, I'm going to be doing this a few times over the next month or so. So apologies if I'm going to sound a bit um, repetitive, but it's for a great cause. And hopefully everyone or some will be able to spare some money for, for them. So that's great. And um on to tonight's show. So, yeah, I, I messaged you, obviously, I think it was yesterday or today, about thinking about a couple of interlinked subjects, the first being um, the uh, reports, I think it was, uh, after the weekend, and then uh, in the Orn uh, David Ornstein um, column in The Athletic yesterday, which really piqued my attention around um, the Jack Grealish injury, and um, and that's sort of what got us going, I guess, for the, for the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah, so for those who missed the story, um, Jack Grealish missed the game uh, against Leicester uh, on the weekend, which was a Villa lost. Uh, but it emerged before the game that, that that Leicester knew about it, that the team news was leaked. And obviously Grealish being an important player for, for Villa is, is a fairly important piece of team news that the opposition um, you know, would love to know before the game because you can adapt your plans accordingly. And it emerged. Now, there's several, several potential sources for the leak, um, you know, there were rumours before the game, regardless, and apparently training ground photos as well, I think. But the one of the potential culprits was uh, members associated with Aston Villa uh, changing their fantasy league team. Um, and it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a fun story um, in of itself, the idea that that has an impact on, on real life football. Um, but there are potential sporting integrity issues, uh, which we can dig into. But Firstly, on this Villa one, yeah, how, how did it emerge, and, and and are there kind of issues surrounding the the topic? 
Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, when we, when we talk about sort of integrity of competition issues, you know, more, I think, as we've talked about in the past, we think about betting and insider information and um, some, somewhat of intention, somewhat the intentional provision of insider information for some type of gain, I guess, is ultimately the, the point. And we've talked about that in terms of Kieran Trippier's FA ban um, uh, and, and associated types of behaviours. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about, well, some hadn't really thought about this too much. Um, if I give you a brief example where the context came from is that quite a good few years ago now, we talked about it before, um, as someone that works with a lot of footballers and agents um, and someone that was thinking about doing fancy football, as soon as I realised I probably had a bit more information than the average punter, um, I was always very cautious of the perception of um, of uh, doing fancy football, in part because I may or may not um, put my clients or players in that I like or don't like or however else it might be, but also in case then there would be the direct or indirect um, uh, presumption um, or perception that somehow I would use that information which wasn't in the public domain to benefit my team and in a way and that's why I didn't really do I mean it sound might sound a bit pedantic but ideally it was just to make sure that that wouldn't couldn't be thrown at me as the truth and and we're in the situation now where um, it looks like that there are different types of automated software bots that can identify um, private and um, fancy football leagues populated by players that have teams and so i guess as soon as you can identify those teams and uh, leagues to a degree and they're not i guess private um in the in the sense that then it can't be found then i guess those bots um, are scraping that information as to when um transfers in or transfers out are happening i guess in the same way it could be even though it's less likely for transfers because those players might not know what's going on but in this instance and it's a, in a piece that myself and one of my colleagues alex harvey's written today and um, that's on linkedin I'll, I'll post afterwards was that um you know five people linked to aston villa um, had in the days preceding the game transferred out Jack Grealish out of their um, fantasy team. Now, obviously, they weren't doing it with the intention to um, create a, a disadvantage or a competitive disadvantage for their team. They could probably think of nothing else that they'd want to do for, for Villa. But at the same time, um, you know, th this type of um, indirect, non-intentional activity that they wouldn't think would have necessarily have occurred as a result has, has happened. So we saw it apparently Mac Target, uh, Neil Taylor, Connor Hurahane, who's at um, Swansea, um, the first team performance analyst and actually the physio transferred out, um, out Greedish. Now, once that came to light yesterday, I believe or so, um, Villa have quite quickly come out and said, um, well, uh, we're, we're just simply stopping players from doing this i'm going to ban them from from being able to um, play in fancy football full stop the query is whether that um, goes on a level and other teams do the same or whether actually now um you know uh, there's a halfway house i don't think that half the halfway house seems very difficult is the truth yeah. around, doesn't it because it's almost like okay you can still keep playing um, but you need to be very careful about transferring in or out any of your own players. Or is there a rule like, for example, you can play it, but you can't you can't pick any of your own players that you know in your team to be able to do things. But as we talked about, got before, opposition players. So 
Oh. You know, we've got, yeah, we've got a certain team we're playing this week, you know, to be subbing or out players of that team. And then, in effect, you're, you're, you're talking about all 20 teams in the league. Well, it just leads to really quite odd situations, doesn't it? Where you could have a situation, like, again, we talked about in the prep for this beforehand, where, and I know maybe some people are thinking this is pedantic, but, um, you know, it's all to do with um, incentives and misaligned incentives or otherwise, where, you know, let's just say you're um, a Newcastle defender playing against Spurs in the next couple of weeks, and you know that <clears throat> your back line might be stretched for a particular reason because of the few injuries and things that people don't know about. Um, and you decide to triple captain Harry Kane, for example. Now, it just not only, um, it, well, I think the point is, it's not a good look, I think is the point firstly. Um, but I think secondly, it just um, it just blurs the lines between perception and reality. Um, is that everybody obviously wants to play fantasy football, but at the same time, the priority for all these players and for the managers and backroom staff isn't for everyone to get caught up in who's going to get an assist or a clean sheet or triple points or which subs to bring in or out. Um, it's to do your day job and some of those things can get a little bit tricky at times. Yeah, it's a funny one because um, on the one hand, we want our players to kind of be human, right? We want them to enjoy the same things that we enjoy. You know, I think I I, I kind of like the idea of, um, so take, take your example there of, um, I, I don't know, someone triple captaining a player so if you're a Spurs player for example some you triple captaining a player who's playing against Arsenal just because you know you, you want them to be Arsenal and I think that's the kind of thing that actually fans love even as much as kind of like a, a last ditch tackle or whatever it's the kind of thing that that brings the players closer to the fans and you, yeah you've got to be careful um yeah about the the, the kind of balance you strike and it's uh, it's almost a shame that I don't know I, I I'm almost a bit um I don't like the idea of bots kind of um, scraping this data and trying to give people, an, I mean, people take it very seriously. I think there's about 7 million fantasy football players. Magnus Carlsen, I think, was the winner one year. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of uh, money at stake within individual leagues. So I get why that's the case, but I also feel a bit, it's a shame that we have to kind of rob the players with a little bit of, a little bit of fun on the side that I don't, I don't think in, in practice has integrity issues. As, as you said, it's the perception of the, um of the integrity issues i think is the main challenge and you know it's like it's also like for example if you're you know the arsenal captain in real life for example is it uh, would uh, arsenal fans be happy if you had three spurs players in your fantasy team for example in the same way as we saw today and i'm not sure whether it's right or not but i saw it on twitter which obviously must be wrong but um uh i saw that um it was reported that and this is how this is how odd things are getting now is that it was reported that um there's controversy because bobby Firmino has liked a instagram post of rick Arlison scoring in the derby and okay. so now this outrage that how outrageous is it that a liverpool player should like a post from their arch rival of scoring a goal even though obviously they're brazilian teammates and obviously a friends and um and the rest of that type of stuff so it's it, it's almost like that sort of um uh in one sense uh yeah odd um asymmetry mixed with this like should should you be doing it for integrity perspective but also should you be doing it because you shouldn't like the rival team or suggest things to happen in a certain way yeah 
yeah, absolutely. So you get into these kind of like maze of uh, of options that they can have. Uh, Jaime's asking a question: Wouldn't this be over if the players themselves, team staff, do did not reveal their IDs in their fantasy Premier League app? I, I suppose so, but I suppose a lot of these people play in quite big leagues. So as soon as it comes out that one player, I don't know, MT one eight four is is actually Matt Target um, Villa left back, um, I think is uh, it. You just kind of the the issue emerges again. Um, we were, we were going to use it unless there was anything else particular to say on that topic. We were going to use this as a bit of a segue into um, the the depths that clubs will go to in order to prepare for the next game, which is which is absolutely fair enough because particularly for teams you know um, that you know Leicester are pushing for Champions League football, the the impact of one point for Leicester this year, particularly this year where it's incredibly tight between Leicester Liverpool. Uh, Chelsea um, and yeah, I suppose to Leicester Man United. Um, you know, one point can make a difference. Knowing whether British playing or not can make a big difference. So clubs are now increasingly sophisticated about the way that they do analysis and so on. And we can get into. I can provide a bit more background as to you know how clubs are set up now behind the scenes. Um, but uh, if we go to the far extreme, the the Spygate issue with Bielsa. Um, was it about about two years ago, two and a half years ago now, I think, um, with, with Derby County. Um, firstly, w- remind us again what the kind of what the wrongdoing was there, what the fines were, um, but also, uh, yeah, I guess it provides a bit of an insight into into the depths that, that clubs will go to. Yeah, the the long and short of it was that there was um, a bit of controversy after um, some someone um, in the Derby training ground spotted. Um, uh, and an identified person um, looking at um, and taking notes of uh, one of their training sessions. Um, it turns out um, after some investigation that it was um, a Leeds employee that uh, Bielsa had asked to um, um, look up and, and, and take note of training, formation, tactics, the, 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 the the particular patterns of play that Derby were going to be um, undertaking for the game against the next game against Leeds, and um, after the, um, I guess the, the the controversy of sorts, um, the, the EFL because Leeds were in the the, the championship at the time, um, decided to charge um, the the club for um, not behaving towards the, the member clubs with the utmost good faith. Um, they were fined. The club was fined, even though Bielsa, um, uh, said that it was totally his responsibility. The club was ultimately fined 200,000 pounds and warned about its future conduct. Um, and then we got into the situation where we, where we talked about before as well, Omar, of that relatively or pretty legendary, um, press conference that happened, um, as a result. And, I guess the depths, um, the unknown depths to a lot of people that um, teams will go when scouting opposition. Yeah, and I think um, it's funny because I remember that that press conference, and a lot of people who work within the analytics and analysis space in, in football are like, "Well, that's pretty normal." The the kind of dossier on on opponents and so on. But I think it really captured the imagination of of a lot of people who um, who didn't necessarily appreciate. You know the the amount of detail that that clubs go into when when analysing their their opposition, and this this can be kind of dated way back. So it's quite interesting the the story of Prozone, who were one of the pioneers in um, providing data and analysis to, to football clubs um, since the late nineties. And the story, as I understand it, goes that um, 
the inventors of Prozone, they hadn't invented Prozone yet, but they were trying to sell like a recovery massage chair to, to Steve McLaren. Um, and McLaren was sitting in the chair, kind of checking it out. And he, he saw, he was watching some videos of the games and he was saying, wouldn't it be great if I could clip together, you know, those key actions and moments in the games. And so the guy selling the chairs thought, well, that's a good idea. Let's, um, let's try and do that. And so they, they set up Prozone, which was all around tagging events in a football match. Um, assigning essentially data points to those football matches so you could draw the video quickly, uh, but then also do analysis on on the data. And so, very zone through the late '90s and then all the way through the noughties, you know, grew into this this big um, performance analysis uh, company that really pioneered the way in, in providing data and analysis for football clubs, essentially enabling uh, creating a whole new industry around um, pre-match preparation and eventually recruitment as well. To the extent that Prozone employed their own analysts and then seconded them out to clubs um, because clubs didn't really know what to do. They, they knew that they needed these analysts coming in, but they didn't really know what, what to do. And so um, Prozone would, would know the market a lot more, hire you know, often sports science students and students out of university um, and, and place them within clubs. And a lot of the kind of leaders in this space including our, our ceo was, was an analyst at, at one point working working at uh, a club um and so that grew and grew and grew and the sophistication with which these departments have grown has really grown off the back of that um certainly within the uk so initially you would start with a performance analyst um who would essentially do everything so pre-match um preparation looking at opposition set pieces looking at key players looking at video and data and so on post-match analysts um you know eventually came along to review performance then you had the whole growth of sports science you had the whole growth of uh, recruitment departments technical recruitment departments beyond just scouting um you know nutritionists uh, training ground analysts um you know dietary expert you know the whole the whole works um and you know everything about a footballer is now tracked and everything about opposition footballers kind of the, the stimulus for this discussion is is monitored as well like clubs try and capture every single detail they can on on opposition players they do you know obviously pre-match scouting reports they the, the amount of depth that goes into kind of set piece analysis and it's funny because you see on match of the day and you see on the highlights you know, how, how did they how did, you'd be really disappointed to concede a goal from a set piece and and they actually are because the amount of preparation that that goes into into analyzing those set pieces um which probably explains why maybe only four percent of corners are scored because because actually you know they they are um they're studied to, to kind of find a, a, a kind of a deep degree now um but yeah the, there's there's just so much detail now that that exists within departments i think um uh the, the amount of roles that exist i think a, a lot of a lot of people may not realize that and and it's why i suppose the information like the jack Grealish information coming out is so important because Yes, you're doing all the analysis, but the moment you know Grealish isn't playing, then you have to adapt your game plan. You have an army of people who can kind of um, understand that from there. One other bit that I was thinking about, um, Omar, as well, is, you know, obviously because a lot of your work is is very much in that performance and data side of things, and obviously 21st Club do a whole array of those types of um, services and consultancy work, is how how much of that information gets actually filtered down to the players and mm. um, pre-game post-game as continual development and 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 you know you always hear the stories um 
some players feel that they're overloaded with information. Others want to soak it up. Sometimes, um, you know, it stops at the manager and the, the sort of technical team and not that much is filtered down. Some have a, a better relationship with data and analysis and, um, you know, um, opposition analysis than, than others. Um, in your experience, and then it's also the, 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 the vehicle for how that information is provided. Is it big presentations involving yeah. the whole squad? Is it individualized, tailored iPads with six clips of this is the striker that you're probably going to be up against, etc.? In your experience, is it obviously a collection of all of those things together? Um, or is it, a, is it a top down or is it now a much more bottom up approach where a lot of players will obviously want to have that info as well? Yeah, I think I think it's a mix. I mean, to be honest, I've not been that close to that space for, for a number of years now. Um, but I think the, the the kind of key point on not overloading players, I think is probably the number one principle that that club stick behind. Um, I think they probably veer more on that side than than the overloading. Um, and then they, uh, you know, in speaking to analysts in the past, I think that there are certain players who are very receptive to it. I know in the past, um, chatting with one club before I remember they had a few American players who, who were very open to coming into the, the analyst room and, and understanding their numbers, which which is obviously a kind of cultural thing that, that the American players were, were more more familiar with. Um, but I think generally it's very much focused on kind of visual information, so videos and clips and so on, as opposed to tables and graphs, um, just because, you know, you, I, th I think even at a personal level, if, I, if I'm watching you know, Monday night football match of the day, it's much more interesting to watch clips. I'm going to be much more engaged than if there's a a, a table or a chart. And I say that as someone who who makes a lot of tables and charts for, for a living. Um, so th th there is that. Um, I think one of the things I've noticed as well in other sports, um, you take um, to the England cricket team got in a little bit of trouble recently. Not, not trouble, but there was a few questions raised when they were playing a, a T20 in South Africa. And they were getting hit all over the park. And actually, the the England um, data scientist, Nathan Lehman, uh, was putting these, I think it was like numbers and letters on the balcony wall. So it was like 42E or, or something like that. Um, and it was being used by by Owen Morgan, the captain, to, uh, it was obviously some kind of code in order to adjust the field or adjust the bowling or, or whatever it was. Um, and there's a question as to, are you able to do that? And within the rules, they were, they were perfectly um, able to do it. That, that may, may change over time in terms of the kind of coaching influence. Um, as we see in tennis, for example, it's not that. Um, but the, um, I, I think that might be a direction that potentially football goes down as well because you've got the coaches barking orders from the touchline. It's very hard to kind of communicate with players on the far side of the pitch in a, in a full stadium. Um, very hard to get messages across during 45 minutes. And, and obviously games can, can shift quite rapidly within the course of a half. So I think that might be a direction that we might see things going where um, that there's kind of signaling and codes that, that players pick up on and they, they've not learned to like a quarterback, but I think they might be a bit more, you know, players are, players are so much more tactically aware now than I think they were, you know, 15 years ago. I think that might be a, a trend we see. Just two very brief things as well that, um, you know, when speaking to the, the data performance and stats clients that we work with a lot is, as most people have seen, um, especially in the Premier League, but obviously on other uh, lower leagues as well, is that um, the, the the management team now have access to live stats effectively throughout the game. Um, and um, in order, I guess, to be able to understand um, intensity, running stats, fatigue, 
you know, all the different load factors, et cetera, that otherwise might be. But then also the other thing that seems to be happening a lot more, and it was instructive that Klopp was saying this in an interview a while back, was that he was asked, I think he was asked, why does he run to the dressing room, especially at Anfield, uh, right away at half time? And supposedly it's because is that Liverpool put two or three visual clips up at half time to be able to demonstrate the tactical tweaks that are necessary during that break. So rather than telling, they're showing. Um, and again, it might be something that, you know, is in your broader team. But are those types of, you know, quite small micro changes obviously be quite useful from going from what Bielsa is saying to um, the the actual tech advances that can that can assist players and coaches? Yeah, it was almost, the Bielsa presentation was almost treated as like, um, this is amazing, this is incredible. Actually, from a kind of player communication, and I'm sure this isn't the case, this isn't the way that it's communicated to players, but from a player communication point of view, not not good at all, really, because um, no one's going to be able to digest that, that level of information is a kind of massive part of it and I think it's interesting I, I um you know 15 minutes is not a long time but half times used to be 10 minutes um and they got changed probably in the early 90s I think um with, with some of the kind of modernizations around the game and uh in 15 minutes you know you've got a lot to get across and clubs now will have during games analysts sitting in the stands coding particular events so yes they're getting they're getting the live data from data providers but often they'll be coding their own events and there'll be very specific things so it might be i don't know the number of times a the goalkeeper plays to the fullback and the fullback plays it long because maybe that's a, a thing that the club's trying to do in that particular game or they're trying to stop the opposition doing and so being able to coding that gives you two things so first it gives you data points it tells you like how many times that's been done by which players but it also gives you access to clips because you can literally go down the software and go give me all the five times that's happened get up on the on the TV screen in in the dressing room and and be able to kind of communicate it to the players so you've got the kind of stat aspect and you've got the the um, the video aspect so yeah I I've never been in a in a dressing room at, at halftime I can't I can't imagine what it's um, what it's like obviously seeing clips in in the various documentaries that have been being aired but uh, my understanding it can be quite a chaotic place but the the level of technology available to clubs now means that they can actually they can influence games in a way that previously would have just been a head coach with the head right treatment. I was just thinking, and it might be just um, a topic for um, uh, another conversation today, because I, I really like all of you when you always think about a lot of blue sky thinking ideas. It just got me thinking about at what point um, do halftime breaks go longer than 15 minutes? I, at yeah. some point, you know, obviously with the, the level mm -hmm. of aerobic ability that obviously people are, running faster, sprinting more, covering more ground, etc. Would five minutes more recovery time be of real value to um, teams generally to be able to have a better second half performance level? That's, yeah, a really interesting point, actually. I, I've never never even considered it, but it's an interesting thing that what happens if we, if we change this thing. And uh, yeah, even this season, it might have been a, a consideration particularly given you know all the in injuries that we've seen this season um I'm, I'm actually amazed it's not come up before but it's um yeah it's, it's certainly yeah it's a good thread to pull on that i i'd like to do that another time sure let's think about that so just before we go um omar um i don't you know it sounds terrible to say what's the other champions league game tonight i don't i'm not i haven't yet and it's uh Bayern lazio which oh that'd be i don't know who it was on twitter but remarks it feels like a very 
mid noughts or early noughties second group stage kind of game. Uh, and I can picture those those early noughties kits of Lazio and Bayern Munich too. Oh, but, uh, yeah, no, I think two really two really good games tonight. I, I love the Champions League knockout stages. No, this is going to be really good, and I, um, yeah, I think, and and also just on the uh, on the the, the Chelsea Atleti um, uh, one, it's just fascinating, and maybe we can talk about another time the the, the resurgence of Suarez. Um, yes. You know, I'm sure you've got some really interesting stats on on him, and obviously linking up with um, Felix as well, who is obviously on fire right now after massive transfer from ben, Benfica was it a while back? Yeah. Um, but you know Suarez is on absolute fire right now by the the sounds of it, and that's not bad for a pretty you know an older striker now who's usually you'd expect by his age is he thirty four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of interesting things I think going on with player age curves at the moment. That that is certainly worth the discussion. Well, before we go, what do you think on uh, on on first leg scores with tonight? Yeah, so I, I get to go first this time. I, yes. Fine. Um, and I think uh, Atletico, I think that they, I know they had a hiccup on the weekend, but they, they're looking like, I, I've actually got a little bit of money on Atletico to win, uh, to win the Champions League this year. I think they're, they're a good value bet. Interesting. Well, I don't have too much choice then, do I really? So we'll, uh, we'll catch in again in a week or so's time. And just before we go, just a quick reminder on the, the football aid front for, for those of you guys in the UK, if you'd like donating some um, money to a really good um, charity, um, it's football aid, and you can um, text uh, 785 70085 um, and text the words footy, F O O T Y. Thanks for listening in and watching in. As always, Omar, great to have you on. Uh, I say on, great to have your input as usual. <laughs> it's great to have me on, I guess. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. <laughs> you, you can, you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on that note, thanks. Um, yeah, and look forward to seeing everybody next week. I'll catch you next week. Cheers, Dan. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the done deal football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book done deal an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business a bit of a mouthful it's available to buy in hard copy digitally via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word go to 13shop.co.uk that's 13shop.co.uk thanks for listening